Well, good morning, all. It's a, a pleasure to be with you this morning. It's 8.59 and 49 seconds. So I wanted to start to make sure I didn't miss it and be off better early than late is my attitude towards uh, uh, airplanes and things like that. <clears throat> I want to talk about the experience of liberty. And there's going to be an interplay in this talk and my later talk and some of the others between ideas, people writing books and having conferences and discussing and sermons in churches and all those other ways in which we develop and discuss ideas and practices. And that's a part of the story of liberty. Because intellectual historians, it's a very important discipline, but they often give us a very misleading picture of the world. It's just all people writing books and talking with each other. But people also innovate. They do things without asking college professors for permission. Who knew? Uh, people start businesses. They, they introduce new legal forms, new forms of cooperation, new ways of doing things, and so on, that is independent of what the intellectuals who left behind a written record were talking about. So when we face history, we look at these records. It's so convenient to look at written speeches of Cicero and the essays of Caesar and newspaper articles and books. We think that tells us what happened. That tells us what people were thinking. But actually, it tells you what intellectuals were thinking, what a pretty small group of the population was thinking. Other people sometimes didn't leave behind books and monuments, but they left us very, very important legacy, ways of doing things, things like the business corporation, which is such a huge, powerful innovation in human society. It allowed people who are not related to one another to cooperate peacefully, involving dozens and hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands and even now hundreds of thousands of people who are not members of the same family, but nonetheless working together as team members. And that wasn't because someone wrote a book uh, in, in the year 1100 saying, you know, let's start a business or something like that. It was people experimenting with new modes. Now, I mentioned my uh, general disdain for most philosophies of history. Uh, but I do think we can identify some conditions that are propitious, that is to say favorable, to the emergence of liberty. It doesn't mean it makes liberty inevitable, but it's more favorable to it. And the first is that in the social order, there is some theory, some widely accepted idea of a higher law. And that takes many different forms. The key is that law isn't just what the warlord or the ruler says it is. That's what warlords like. What I say is the law. But there's another tradition that there's some higher law. And this is articulated neatly uh, by a, a philosopher whom I don't uh, agree with very much, but he had a nice way of putting it, Leo Strauss. Uh, he talked about Jerusalem and Athens. And that's shorthand for revealed religion and philosophy. So if you know in Jerusalem, very broadly, if you think about revealed religion, that the Hebrew people brought something new to the world, which was the idea that God is transcendent to his creation. God is not just another thing in the world. And we feel, see that very strongly in the uh, story of the burning bush. Moses goes up in the book of Exodus uh, to the hill, to the mountain at Sinai, and has some kind of interaction with God. And when I talk to college students, I say, he goes to burningbush.com, and you got a, a download. 
of some sort of the law. And he has a, a kind of conversation with God that transcends our normal human understanding. When he's doing that down below, you know the story, um, the people say, where's this Moses? Where did he go? The one who led us out of the land of Egypt. Where is he? And they go to Aaron and they say, make us gods to go before us like all the other nations. And Aaron says, bring me your golden earrings and your jewels and your bangles. I'll melt them. He makes a golden calf and they dance and they pray and they worship to it. And he says, these are your gods, Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. Meanwhile, back up in the mountain, Moses and God are having some kind of a dialogue. And God says, behold, this is a stiff-necked people. He says, now leave me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I will completely consume them, destroy them. But of you, I will make a great nation, which means you have many, many children, because tribes are essentially very big extended families. And then what makes this perhaps a uniquely Jewish story, an interesting twist to it that may not be expected, is that Moses argues with God. Not, not the first thing that might come to mind when you're having this conversation. Moses argues with God, and the Lord repents of his decision. So this is a very deep theological question. What is happening here? Theologians have puzzled over this. But the Lord repents of his decision and allows them to leave. But the message is very clear. Do not do this again. Now, why is that important in terms of politics or policy? Because it becomes one of the most terrible things for a mere human being, just a human being like you or me, a warlord, to say, I am your God. Worship me. That's what rulers like. The pharaohs of Egypt were gods. And to approach them, a mere mortal would not approach a god. The only pharaoh who denied his own divinity, Akhenaton, came to a very bad end. And there's archaeological evidence that it was burning at temples and so on. There was some kind of internal revolt. Possibly the priests saying, this is not good for the temple business if you're not God. <laughs> People don't bring all the money. Uh, <clears throat> it's unclear what was happening there, but he comes to a bad end. And many other rulers claim that they have descent from the heavens or from God. But for the Hebrews, this becomes a terrible sin. All of us are subject to some higher law. Even the people of, of Israel can be judged by a higher law. <clears throat> then we can turn to Athens and a complementary but different tradition of philosophy. Philosophy is a love of wisdom. It's figuring out how the world works. And if you think about one of the great figures we associate with Athens, he was not an Athenian, but Aristotle of Stagira, which is in Macedon, he was a resident foreigner. He had a green card, uh, essentially, in Athens. And he wants to understand the nature of things, how everything works. It's amazing, he wrote in biology, how turtles swim and wh where eggs come from and how people walk and motion and everything. He wanted to understand how it worked. And he wanted to see the reason behind it. And there's a term in Greek, to rationalize the appearances, to make what appears uh, disordered to show there's an order that generates it. So you think about astronomy, the history of astronomy. Uh, 
people believe that the Earth's at the center and all the stars go around us, because if you lie on your back at night on a dark night, they seem to go around us. But there's some that don't. They wander. They're called planetes in Greek, the wanderers, from planeo to wander. They're not regular motions. They're not always in circles. How do we account for that? And, of course, uh, the great uh, Ptolemy comes up with this theory of epicycles. They are moving on circles, circles that are on circles, on circles, on circles. Some are going this way and some are going that way. So you reduce the apparently irregular motions to regular motions. You see the order underneath it. Later, of course, Copernicus comes up and says, I have a simpler way of doing the same thing. Don't put the Earth at the center, put the Sun at the center. And then you can generate the same observations. So it's about finding the order. And for Aristotle, think about human life. He sets a tradition that becomes known as the natural law tradition, that there are laws that govern human life as well. It's not just all chaos and disorder. He uh, had something to say that's very powerful for a Greek audience. So you know, for the Greeks, there are two types of people, so featherless bipeds, if you will. There's two types. There's Greeks, and there are barbarians. And the reason is, not as we think barbarian means savage and wearing a bear skin and things like that. It meant they can't speak. Because when you go up to speak Greek to them, they say bar, 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 bar. <laughs> they can't talk. They're not like us. They're not Greek. This is very common. Lots of human groups have a sense that the people and the others the people are the members of our usually linguistic community. And you even find that today in uh, Austrian dialect of Germany, of, of German, if someone doesn't make sense, you say, he was speaking Czech. So, er hat böhmisch gesprochen. Because to a German ear, Czech sounds like a duck quacking. It doesn't make any sense. And so that's very common. But it, of course, was the foundation of chauvinism, looking down on the barbarian peoples. And Aristotle wanted to dissipate that. And he has a passage in the, uh, in the Nicomachean Ethics where he talks about fire. He says, fire does not burn one way in Persia and another way in Greece. It's a very indirect way of suggesting there's, there's not Persian fire and Greek fire, there's fire. And there's not Persian nature and Greek nature, there's human nature. Because to be a human is to be tsoan logon, the animal who talks. Usually translated badly as the rational animal. It's a terrible translation. Rational in our minds means calculating. It's not what he meant. The, and we're the animals who talk. We can give an account of our behavior, why we do things. We can explain things and understand each other. And that's true of Persians as it is of Greeks. There's a common human nature. And from this comes a tradition of natural law. Now, natural law is sometimes discussed as being theological in origin. And people who do that show they don't know what they're talking about. It's called natural law, not supernatural law. Theological would be supernatural law, God's law. It's natural law. It's how the world works that we can understand by reason. And the most highly developed branch of it today is called economics. If you, as I mentioned last night, print a lot of paper money, prices will go up. It's not magic. And it's nothing that only happens to Europeans or only Africans or only Asians. It's in the nature of money. Abolish private property and land and collectivize it, and people will eat each other. We know that. That happened in the Soviet Union. 
It happened in communist China. We've run that experiment. We know what happens. It's not because they lacked virtue. They, they, they couldn't create the new Soviet man. New Soviet man, they tried to create it for all those decades. He never showed up. They had the same old human beings. So there are natural laws that govern our lives. And then the next point is about law understood as a legal system. Those who believe in the supremacy of the state or the rulers or the sovereign say the law is created and imposed. I make the law and I impose it on you. So for example, King James VI and I okay, becomes the uh, uh, King of England in 1603 after the extinction of the Tudor line, makes it very clear. In 1598, he wrote a book on the true law of monarchies, and he said, ye see it manifest that the king is overlord of the whole land. He is the master over every person that inhabiteth the same, having power over the life and death of every one of them. For although a just prince will not take the life of any of his subjects without a clear law, yet the same laws whereby he taketh them are made by himself. You get it? Right? And the point being, if the law is inconvenient to the king, the sovereign, the king can make a new one. And as he says, I have at length proved that the king is above the law. So that's the theory that was advanced by absolutists. And it makes sense. If you make the law, just make a new one if it's inconvenient for you. But law in the liberal, libertarian tradition can also be discovered. The purpose of law, of the common law, of the classical Roman law, was to find out what is the law. And law is developed as something that can be known and studied. It's not just an expression of will or power. So if you have a, an idea of law that it's just will and just power, you're not going to get liberty out of that. But if law is something that can be discovered as governing human relationships by law discovery procedures, courts and judges and law schools and all of those things, that is, I think, a necessary condition for uh, the emergence of liberty. Now, the big problem is how to limit power. In a way, the big story about liberty was bringing power under law, taming power. There's power in human relationships. People dominate others. They hit each other. They take their stuff. The people who have power, how can we subject power to law? Because, as we know, we need some kind of power to co control other powers. I want to deal with this question of power offsetting power as the key to understanding how power can also be brought under law. So start in ancient Sumeria, go to Judea, and then to Europe and beyond. One of the oldest stories uh, that we have, and the text is available for it, is the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a very powerful, great poem. I highly recommend it. There's a Stephen Gilbert translation that's not accurate, but he fills in a lot of gaps. It's quite a good story. And it's a story of Gilgamesh, who's the king of Uruk. And as you can see from this image, he's a powerful man. This is a propaganda poster. He's holding in each hand a lion. So he's coming into town with a lion by the tail, right? This means he's powerful. And as it says, powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert, Gilgamesh would not leave the young girls alone. Not unknown. Uh, among holders of executive authority. 
the daughters of warriors, White House interns, the brides of young men. <laughs> and the gods often heard their complaints. And they pray to the gods to save them because he had the power as the ruler on the wedding night of a young man and a young woman. He slept with the bride. And we're all grown-ups here, so we know he didn't really sleep with her. He didn't say, I'm so sleepy. Let's sleep now. <laughs> so he rapes these young women. They're raped. And this shows his power and dominance over them and humiliates her, humiliates the family. It says, I am the alpha male here. And the people pray for some relief from this. And one of the gods named Oruru uh, helps to create a natural man. Enkidu, out of some, some clay and grass out in the fields and fashions a natural man who then goes to the city and challenges him. And at the door of the father-in-law's house, he says, you may not enter here. And they fight. Neither one can destroy the other. The story then continues and has all kinds of very interesting chapters afterwards. But the key story is the only way to protect yourself from this unlimited power is another power that can counterbalance it. Or as the American founders said, checks and balances, which is the key to uh, maintaining liberty. We can move forward then in the same region <coughs> to the city of Lagash, which is Talo in contemporary Iraq. It's still there as a village. Do not go there, by the way. Uh, but it is the first story of a kind of libertarian revolt Arukagina had established the freedom of the citizens, freed the markets, allowed competition, eliminated the monopolies, and secured the property of everyone, the rich and poor alike, would be secure in what they owned. And this uh, <clears throat> uh, vast um, uh, poem about it was discovered by French archaeologists, and in it is the first word for liberty in any uh, written form, amaji. It's a very interesting word. Uh, it means liberty, means individual liberty, to be a free person. I checked this because I had a tattoo of that done many years ago. <laughs> and before you get a tattoo, uh, go check experts to make sure it does not say kick me or <laughs> something embarrassing. So I went to the Department of Sumerology at the Utvash Lorantura Manyajitam in Budapest, which is the best Sumerological University virtually, and they said it means liberty, really robust. And it comes from, very puzzling, return to the mother. So we're not sure why, but the theory was it was a matrilineal society, so descent was traced through the mother rather than through the father, which is more common today. And therefore, if you were a slave and you were freed, you returned to the, your family, hence returning to the mother. But they said, that's speculative. We're not sure. But they said in the context, it means to be a free person, not a slave and not bonded to another human being. We can skip forward again in the general neighborhood. <clears throat> Book of Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8. Uh, when people come to him and they say, your sons do not walk in your ways. They do not have kings. They had judges. We need a king because your sons are corrupt. And Samuel prays to the Lord and God says, do not despair. They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. 
And then comes this astonishing passage, a warning. These will be the ways of the king who will rule over you. He will take a tenth of your flocks. He will take your sons to run before his chariots, to be his soldiers. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, again, White House aides, on and on. <laughs> and it says, and you will cry out in that day because of the king, the king that you have made, but the Lord will not hear you. It's a very powerful warning about kings. And this is cited then for thousands of years, including in the very important book by Thomas Paine, Common Sense, that sparked the war for independence. He cites this. He says, this is why kings are dangerous. <clears throat> now, the development of freedom, we can't skip over the Greeks, but I won't have very much to say about them. Except, say, about 500 before the Common Era, something astonishing happens. An enormous degree of wealth and personal freedom, most especially in Athens, but also in the other Greek cities. The Greeks take to the seas. They engage in commerce, trade. Their cities are open to foreigners. They learn from other people. And they develop a relatively free society for the context of the time. And I do not want to overly emphasize this or romanticize it. Even in Athens, the bulk of the population were slaves. They did not enjoy personal freedom. But those who did have freedom had remarkable freedom of speech. The Cleisthenic reforms brought about the principle you could speak freely in the assembly and not be punished for saying something other people don't like. Not be punished if you lost the vote and the majority was for something else. <clears throat> And they also had a high degree of personal freedom for women. And this is, I think, a kind of barometer of how free the society is. There were independent women who were business people, uh, philosophers, poets. Uh, the teacher of Socrates, Diotima, was a woman. She was a philosopher. Uh, and they were considered high members of society. Did not vote, did not have the same rights as men, but they were not trampled upon and considered mere uh, chattels or property. <laughs> Now, this society is invaded twice by the great Persian Empire. And we're, we know these from the two very famous battles of Marathon and uh, Thermopylae that were immortalized, that they were heroic struggles, that they were fighting for something. Because the Greeks of the Ionian uh, area currently in Turkey had capitulated. They were overrun by the Persians. But when they come to the mainland, they offer them the same terms, which are very reasonable. We'll put a Persian military garrison here. There'll be some modest taxes. Otherwise, you run your own affairs. Not that bad. But if you fight us and you lose, we will totally raise your city. We will tear down your gods and destroy your temples and defile them. And we will rape every thing we think rapeable and kill your population, whom we do not, those whom we do not enslave to miserable death in the silver mines or elsewhere. But the Greeks fight them and <clears throat> defeat them. Both invasions are turned back. And these are well-known stories, the Battle of Marathon, uh, particularly that the Greek army, the Athenian and Platean armies, had marched back to Athens after defeating the Persians on the battlefield, a 24-hour forced march. And when the Persian fleet came to Athens to attack Athens, thinking they're away, we'll attack them, the same army was lined up along the shore to greet them, and they sailed home. Uh, and then the bottle of Thermopylae, the famous one with the 300 Spartans who get all the credit, but there were 400 Thebans and 700 Plataeans with them. And they died, all of them, to a man. But finally, the Battle of Salamis was what turned it 
against the, the Persians. This leads to a great discussion, what is freedom? And this flourishing of Greek civilization and poetry that we associate with the high period of Greek culture. And there's a great deal of what is freedom, what is law, what is justice, in poetry, in philosophy, and so on. Later, the war between Sparta and Athens pits two leagues, if you will, and most philosophers throughout history have favored the Spartans. They're fabulous. Everyone loves the Spartans because they have discipline, a common purpose, and order. And the Athenians, the Athenians are so disordered and chaotic. They don't have a common purpose. They're always debating and arguing things. And they let foreigners, of all things, foreigners live amongst them. And everyone knows that's not right. Right? They have foreigners there. Well, as uh, our colleague, Andrew Colson, passed away, but he was a very fine historian of education. And he put it very neatly in his book on the history of education. He says, well, we can tally this up. Which was the most important? From the Athenians, we get comedy, poetry generally, tragedy. We get histories. We get astronomy. We get geometry. We get arithmetic. We get actuarial science. We get biology, architecture. Keep going on. And from the Spartans, we get the names of lots of American high school football teams. <laughs> That's a major contribution to human civilization. They were warriors. That's what they did. They fought. Uh, and in the Thucydides' history of the Peloponnesian War, there's this powerful speech that Pericles gives at the funeral. He contrasts the two. And he says, we are free people. We are not afraid to discuss things in advance. We are not afraid of the opinions of other people. We believe it's better to talk about these things freely and then make a decision about what to do. We do not have deportations. I think it's quite relevant for today, by the way. We're not afraid of having people of other nations live amongst us. We do not close our city to the world. We trade with everyone. And that is why we are great. And that is what we are fighting for. It's a very powerful speech on the nature of liberty. We can move then forward. The Greek civilization is finally overcome by the Romans. And the complexities of the Roman Republic, the monarchy, the Tarkins had been overthrown and expelled. And then the establishment of a remarkable res publica, a public thing. The patricians and the plebeians come to an agreement in which plebeians were admitted into property ownership and into uh, the ability to be in public office. And the Roman constitution, you could understand, it's so complicated, but understand it as a very complex system to keep anyone from getting total power, to prevent the return to a monarchy. So you have consuls and tribunes and praetors and aediles and the senate, which means the old guys made up of the previous office holders. And it makes it very difficult for anyone to get power. And it only lasted 500 years. Now, some people say, well, that failed. And I always remind them, I say, our republic has not lasted that long yet. And who knows how long it will last. It will only last as long as we are willing to keep it. But nothing lasts forever. And this one lasted a long time. It does finally come to an end. And if you want to date the end of the republic, this is a pretty good date. Uh, the year 46, before the Common Era, 
when Cato the Younger committed suicide. He had been defeated, his forces at the Battle of Thapsus, Utica. Uh, previously, the Republican armies led by Pompey the Great were defeated in 48 at the Battle of uh, Pharsalus by Caesar's forces. And Cato was not willing to allow Caesar to pardon him. He knew that was Caesar's desire. He would defeat you, pardon you, and then make you essentially an accessory to his, his power. Cato said, he will not do that to me. And he famously commits suicide. And as um, um, Plutarch said in his life of Cato the Younger, he died the last free and undefeated man in Rome. And he signals the republic now is finished. And something new is going to take its place. We call that the empire. Uh, uh, Octavian, Caesar Augustus, becomes the prince, which means the first citizen. He maintains the form of the republic, but it becomes what we would call today dictatorship, not the correct term to apply in the Roman context, but uh, all power derives from him. That empire lasts a long time, but it too comes to an end. It's divided into two. Uh, starting with Constantine's establishment of the city of Constantine, Constantinopolis in the year 330. And for some time after that, you end up in a very complex period of Roman history with two co-emperors. And I explained this to students. I said they had not yet developed Twitter so that the emperor could not communicate directly with the people. It's a very huge area, so they had two co-emperors for a substantial portion of this. Uh, but finally, this empire comes to an end. The Roman legions are withdrawn. Uh, the last Roman emperor in 476 is turfed out of Rome. So after that date, there's no longer a Roman emperor in Rome. There's still a Roman emperor in Ravenna, uh, Julius Nepos, uh, and in Constantinopolis, but no longer one in Rome. But there's someone very important in Rome, whom I'll talk about in a moment, the Christian bishop of Rome who begins to acquire the trappings of the Roman Empire. There are many terms that uh, we think of in the context of what's now called the Pope. Il Papa means the daddy of the church. There may someday be a mom, but we will see. Uh, but the Pope is the, the father of the church. And he begins to acquire the offices and significance of the Roman Empire. He's the pontiff. Well, the the College of Pontiffs was a Roman uh, pagan, if you will, a religious body responsible for several things. One was the maintenance of bridges, and the other was the laws. They were a college of lawyers. The Pontifex Maximus was the chief lawyer during the period of classical Roman law. Uh, now we call the pontiff means the pope, because he, bridges, he builds the bridge between heaven and earth. But they acquire this significance of the Roman Imperium. As this empire collapses, the uh, legions are gone. Europe is subject to a multitude of invasions. It's a very complex period because the textual evidence is quite scanty at the end of the Roman Imperium in the West. There are various theories why this happens. One associated with Henri Piran, a great uh, liberal historian, Belgian historian, was that it was the rise of Islam and the conquest of Islam of the Mediterranean cut Europe off from the Mediterranean trade. And this was the catastrophe. 
It wasn't a military conflict per se. It was the lack of access to uh, the Mediterranean, to Mare Nostrum, our sea, as the Romans had called it. But there are various other theories, the role of the Germans, and so on. Uh, what replaces it across Europe we now call feudalism. And it's a form of military defense and social order that's much more decentralized. A local person, a warlord, if you will, has a lot of land and power, a chieftain of some sort, and says, I will grant you land in exchange for you bringing soldiers when I call on you if we're attacked. You will bring two knights with two horses, for example, or whatever it might happen to be. And there would be a formal oath uh, that would be taken. Uh, it was initially voluntary. So the initial feudal system has a voluntary foundation. You take the oath freely in support for land and services. And it was mutual. That's another key element. It's not just, I submit to you. I will do this and submit to you and make you my lord on condition you will protect me when I need it. So there was a very profound reciprocity in the relationship. This evolves over time, and later feudalism becomes hereditary. It was not initially. But think about the economic incentives. If you grant land to someone with the understanding that when he dies, it goes back to the king, what incentive does that person have to improve it? Darn little. And the consequence was people would wreck it, and the king would get it back and say, well, there's nothing here because you've sucked all the value out of it, and you can't leave it to your children. And so over time, a process of negotiation on the margins turns these into hereditary uh, claims that you inherit it. And that becomes more efficient, if you will, for both uh, parties. But initially, it was a purely contractual relationship. Uh, a new form of governance begins to emerge in Europe uh, as some of the uh, invasions begin to taper off. So the 10th and 11th centuries are very important in Europe because there's a huge increase in invasions from the north. You have the Magyars coming from the west, uh, from the east, so-called Saracens. Uh, so it's a blanket term for <clears throat> Muslim, Arab, and Turkish and other invaders from the south. Uh, but these are slowly being beaten back. And a new form of governance emerges, the Abbey of Cluny, founded 910, it's a Benedictine order, and they establish a new kind of organization. And it's one of the foundations of modern organizations all over the world. Because, again, it's a group of unrelated persons. So there's no dad and mom to tell people what to do. There's no tribal chieftain. How do we cooperate? They develop rules of order, what we call bylaws today, how things are done, how the vote is taken, how we elect the abbot or the officers, <clears throat> and they generate massive amounts of wealth. Here's the contemporary Abbey of Cluny today. It's been rebuilt since then. And this becomes an order that is adopted all across Europe. And the church acquires enormous amounts of wealth in the process. They're going out, clearing the land, killing wolves, angering the local Greenpeace chapters. Uh, but at this time, wolves were eating lots of people. So wolves would like eat everyone in the village and they didn't like that. Uh, and so they would bring this kind of order and then grow grapes and make wine and beer. This is very important in Europe, by the way. There's a reason for that. It's the only water you can drink, the only liquid that's not going to have poison in it, or bacteria and cholera and so on. 
So typically, you would make a very strong fermented beverage and then dilute it into water. Basically, you're killing all the bugs in the water, so you can drink it. So all of Europe is just a little tipsy most of the time, but avoiding all of these waterborne diseases. The church also organizes something called the Peace of God Movement, Pax Dei. They go out, and this is a very robust kind of social contract. Priests would go out, often from clinic orders, and say, all right, we have all this fighting because of this feudal system and honor culture, and if you insult me, I just have to kill you. It's not personal, I just I have to do that. And then because I killed you, someone in your family just has to kill me. Right? These feuds, we understand how that works. They're common features of human life. But they're very disruptive, and especially disruptive to the church that has all this wealth. It's not good for your business when people are massacring each other right outside the door of your art frame boutique or whatever it happens to be. You don't get a lot of business. And so they bring people out, and they say, let's all take an oath. Surely we'll, we will not fight on Sunday, the Lord's Day, right? Everyone agree? No fighting on Sunday? Okay. And, you know, the day of the local saint whoever saint it might have been, her birthday's coming up. You can't fight on her day. <laughs> Everyone? And they would say, all those who agree, stand up. And those who do not, please go over there that we may know who you are, that you are the violent people. You do not take an oath not to fight. This is very powerful for spreading the idea through contract of not fighting, of being peaceful. And now, one of the most important moments that really distinguishes the entire Eurasian landmass, Europe, or we might say even Western Europe, from all the rest. And it's called the Gregorian Reformation. There was a conflict between the German emperors. It's a complex story how they get the title of emperor. It goes back to the year 800, when the bishop of Rome had been booted out of Rome, and he called on his good friend Carolus Magnus, who was the king of the Franks. Carolus Magnus sounds like a very noble name. It just means Big Charles. <laughs> He's a warlord. <clears throat> he calls on Big Charles, whom we know now as Charlemagne, because if you say Carolus Magnus very fast for a 1,000 years, it changes into Charlemagne. So we call him Charlemagne. Uh, calls on him. He returns him to his throne, and the bishop says, I'm so happy, Chuck. Thank you very much. That's great. And I'm going to make you emperor of the world. So he does that. And he, it's the translation of the imperium of the Roman people to the German nation. Later, through many, many, many changes, the Ottonians and so on, becomes the Holy Roman Empire of the German nation, which is finally abolished by Napoleon. But go a little bit forward from the year 800. There's a conflict. The German emperors say, we invest the bishops with their land and authority. And this pope a monk named Hildebrand, who becomes Pope Gregory VII, says, I don't think so. And he fights for the freedom of the church, the independence of the church. He issues the Dictatus Pompey, which is a list. It's a very puzzling document. The Roman bishop alone is to be called universal. He is the, the one whose feet are to be kissed by all princes. You get the sense of how insulting that is. He has the power to do to depose emperors and absolve subjects of their loyalty. It's a very powerful claim. And King Henry IV of Saxony, the German emperor, is not happy, and he sends back a letter. 
And he says, I, Henry, king by the grace of God, to Hildebrand. You hear the insult? Not Gregory, to Hildebrand. Not pope, but false monk. And he rebuts his claims and says, I therefore say with all my bishops, go down, go down to be damned throughout the ages. It's quite a conflict between the secular, what we would later call the secular power and the religious power. <clears throat> Who wins? Well, you think, right? Emperor, he has armies, he has castles, he has infantry, he has knights on horseback. Pope, he has uh, tubby Belgian monks. <laughs> he has nuns, right? He has uh, parish priests. Uh, who's going to win? And it's a complicated story, but the emperor journeys to Knesset to beg forgiveness and readmission into the church. Now, the part that's usually left out is there's a Norman army camped out nearby. They're on a hiking expedition through Europe. Uh, and if you remember, his predecessor in 1066 had supported the Norman claim to the throne of England. So these were very savvy bargainers and negotiators, and they called in uh, the chits that were owed to them. Uh, but the, the significance is it divided power. There's not just power. There are multiple powers, and they interpenetrate each other. So Europe has this imperial system interpenetrated by a church. And if one is oppressing you, you can go to the other. And if that one oppresses you, go back. Not that one was libertarian and the other was statist or something like that. They both want power, but they check each other. And they're not territorially delimited either. They interpenetrate, and their legal systems interpenetrate. So you can go from one to the other. It makes a very competitive legal system. About the same time, the year 1080, the Roman law is discovered. And in 1088, the first law school, the longest continuous law school in the world in Bologna, teaches the Roman law. This is a great document. It was drawn up by the emperor on the orders of the emperor Justinian by the lawyer Trebonian in the year 530. He said, write down what's happened in the Roman law in the last mm, thousand years. And they do it. And it's an astonishing document. And it's lost in the West and rediscovered. And people were so impressed because they remember this is the law of Rome. They remembered Rome. They all lived in Roman ruins. So if it, many of you have been to Europe, some of you grew up in Europe, you know there are Roman ruins everywhere. Wherever the Romans went, the ruins contractors came in, whoosh, up with the ruins, they had the best. So they're just all over the place. <clears throat> These people lived in them. So they said, this is the law of Rome. And they begin to teach it. And there are two principles that are drawn from it. Quod omnis tangit ab omnibus approbatur. What touches all must be approved of by all. It's actually drawn from a particular chapter on, on uh, testamentary succession and wills. But it was taken out of context to mean, if it affects us all, we must give our consent. This later is translated through many different iterations as something that Rob McDonald might talk about, no taxation without representation. And this is where it comes from. And then the other side, drawing a line from the introduction to the Institute of Justinian, the textbook for teaching law, <clears throat> what pleases the prince has the force of law. So which one do you think prince is like of those two? Mm. <laughs> Second one. And the people were supporting these new voluntary associations like the first one. And these might seem abstract ways, but they painted them on their battle shields when they would go into battle. These were the principles for which they were fighting. 
Now, <clears throat> the growth of medieval communes, another thing happening in parallel, but these are all connected to each other, all these different developments. This is the city of Cologne in the 16th century. <clears throat> it's a wonderful place to go and visit. And you can see the growth of this commune. It was originally a Roman city, Colonia Agripensis, you can hear. But when the Roman legions withdrew, it's abandoned. There's just a bishop and some cows uh, in the city. <clears throat> and later, uh, starting really in the 10th century and beyond, merchants come there. And they start to do business. They set up little tables and sell goods. And more customers come, more merchants come, more customers, more merchants. They build a palisade, a wall around themselves. You can go to, in Cologne to see the archaeological excavations. Quite interesting of the origins of the, of the modern city. And they create a self-governing commune. They govern themselves. And this very important principle, Stadtluft macht frei. City air makes you free after one year and one day. And you know, the National Socialists understood European history and they understood symbolism. What did they write over the gate and the Auschwitz? Arbeit macht frei. Work will make you free. To understand this, this is a deep mockery of their victims. They understood what they were doing. They're mocking them. And it was no accident. They were forced to walk over the broken and crushed headstones of the desecrated Jewish cemeteries. They destroyed all the Jewish cemeteries of Europe except one, which is in Prague, which they preserved. You can visit it today. They made it to be the uh, museum of the forgotten Jews of Europe. They kept one. All the rest were destroyed, and they turned them into paving stones, a form of, of humiliation. But for Europeans, they understood this principle, city air makes you free. If you run away from your feudal lord, if you're a serf, you get into the city, and you go there one year and one day. You go from one Starbucks to another for the whole year. <laughs> you become a free person, and the city will defend you. There are many recorded examples of people coming and saying, that's just my serf. Bring him to me. They say, sorry, he's been here a year and a day. You may not do that. And if you go to Tallinn, which had its own independent commune in Estonia, uh, there's two walls, the wall of the city of the citizens and the wall of where the aristocrats lived. And a very famous case when the aristocrats had seized someone and took him out. And the citizens went and captured the aristocrats, brought them in, and beheaded them inside the city walls. They said, we are a free and safe people here. <clears throat> Government was provided by agreements among voluntary groups. They provided security, peace, public goods of all sorts. These are the, in German they're called Wappen, coats of arms is not the right term, I don't know what they're called in English, for the guilds, uh, to indicate the you know, bakers and key makers and so on. Uh, and they promoted peace, that was a very important principle, not fighting, they're merchants. Peace and toleration. So don't let college professors tell you that peace and toleration were promoted by philosophy professors. This is not true. It's promoted by business people. They know the first thing you learn in business, do not kill your customers. <laughs> it's very important. You lose the repeat sale, right? You don't get any recommendations, and so on. So they understand from practice to be tolerant. Uh, and if you look, these are the foundations of civil society. Guild Hall, the city of London, which is not London, but the city of London, very small part of it, is a medieval corporation that predates parliament. 
and it is governed now still by these uh, merchant associations. And you go into Guildhall, you see all of these uh, various um, uh, 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 shields of the different uh, guilds. And merchants make law. The Lex Mercatoria, the international law of mercantile exchange, is developed by business people, not by kings and queens. Business people and lawyers. And it is now the foundation. If a Canadian and a Kenyan and a Korean do business, this is the law that governs them to this day, created by business people. They make the law when they make claims against each other and take them to courts for adjudication. What we see in general is a progress, as the English historian Sir Henry Sumner Maine put it, from societies of status, where you're born into a status, to societies of contract, where your relationships with other people are based on free agreement. And from this comes so much that characterizes modernity. People can reinvent themselves. You can be the person you want to be. That's a very important part of the free society. If you don't like the identity that you grew up in, it doesn't suit you. You can do something else. And there are so many examples of personal reinvention. This is possible in the modern world because our relationships are, gen are based on contract and not merely inherited status. And before our eyes, we're seeing this happening in India. It's one of the most exciting and dramatic developments of the world since 1991, when the market was substantially liberated in India. I'm going to say substantial. There's a long way to go. But people could enter business freely. The distinctions of inherited caste and privilege have dropped away. And the Dalit people, used to be called untouchables, but don't use that word in India. It's, it's like the N word in America. It's a very bad word. Uh, they call themselves Dalits. Uh, they are at the absolute bottom of the social heap. And now, because of the market, their life is totally transformed. And we have many Dalit, I work with a lot of Dalit libertarians in India, and they work with people to help them to change their lives. They say, change your name, change your profession, and change where you live. And you can live the life of a dignified human being. Now there are Dalit millionaires, Dalits on boards of universities, major corporations, Dalits who own homes and have dignity, uh, and other people do fundraising from Dalits. Uh, this was unimaginable before, because part of that, a Brahmin would not let the shadow of a Dalit fall onto his shadow. It would pollute him, and the Dalit would be punished and beaten as a consequence. So this is totally transformative, and it's happening just as we speak right now, as India is turning more into a contract and less of a caste society because of the market. Civil society takes hold. Uh, this is a very interesting term. Uh, we have two words that have come into English. English is a nice hybrid language. Uh, civitas gives a civil. Means a city, not as a place. Uh, English is not very sophisticated in this regard. When I say the city of New York, do I mean the place, the buildings, or do I mean the association of persons and laws? And Latin and Greek distinguish those. So civitas versus orb. Orb is the place. And civitas is the civic body, the, uh, uh, um, the laws and the legal system. And in Greek, it's polis, which means the association, and astu, which means the place. We don't have that in English. But the neat thing about Latin and civitas, it gives us civil. We also see this in English as a way of behaving toward other people. 
If you are civil, it means you are respectful of others. You don't hit people. You don't just uh, beat them up or take their stuff. Uh, it doesn't mean you're everyone's friend. It means you're civil. And it's lovely in England. English mothers have this expression. I lived in England for a couple of years. When children are misbehaving, they say, be civil. And then they hit them on the top of the head <laughs> with their fingers. It makes this astonishing popping sound. It must be incredibly painful to the child. Uh, and they become civil. Uh, it means don't hit people, don't take their stuff, don't lie. Those are the three fundamental principles of civilization. And then from German, a Burg is a strong place. It's a fortified place of safety. And we get Hamburg, Pittsburgh, Hillsboro. The word borough comes from this. And bourgeois, French people suffer from uh, a genetic defect that their tongues cannot pronounce German words. And it's bürgerlich, and they turned it into bourgeois, which comes into English then with a negative connotation, unfortunately. Unfortunately, it has a negative connotation. It's low, low taste somehow. Oh, how bourgeois. But in fact, it should be understood as civil society. And when Karl Marx attacks civil society, it's bürgerliche Gesellschaft that he's attacking. But gets missed in the English. And of course, the House of Burgesses, the oldest representative body in America. Uh, we also get uh, written charters of uh, privileges and immunities, constitutions, Magna Carta, the very famous one from 1215. Uh, Article 39, no free man shall be taken, imprisoned, or disazed, outlawed, banished. Disazed means having your stuff taken from you. Uh, or in any way destroyed, nor will we, the king, proceed against him or prosecute him, except by the lawful judgment of his peers. Where does this come about in the U.S. Constitution? Trial by jury. It's not quite what it meant in this context, but this is the root of that. Or by the law of the land. In our Constitution, due process of law traces back to this. But it is not uniquely British. British people sometimes will say, only the English people had this. This is not true. It's a fantasy. Uh, Magna Carta was very important. Uh, and if you go to Runnymede, you can see the fabulous uh, monument to Magna Carta. I'm honoring it in the British Isles. And if you look at the base, it says constructed by the American Bar Association, <laughs> by the way. Um, but it was not uniquely uh, British. There were others, the Golden Bull of Hungary and the Pact of Kosciuszko, and, and so on. This is a European phenomenon of limiting the powers of kings and monarchs. Now, a very quick digression. I talked a little bit about the, uh, the Mongols uh, last night, and they created highly predatory states, and the most important one that they left behind was Europe, was in uh, Russia. And uh, Richard Pipes, who's a historian of Russia from Harvard University, he says, you know, the weird thing is when you do European history, every place else, most of the documents we have are court records. He says, there's no evidence in medieval Russia of any courts. He says, it's very odd. Uh, no rights, no law, just power of some sort or another. Now, there is an exception, though, that our Russian libertarian friends like to focus on. It's the city of Novgorod. Novgorod was much more European in that other sense. Established in the ninth century, uh, they had their own Magna Carta before the English did. Yaroslav the Wise agreed to a charter that established the privileges, and immunities, and rights of the citizens. Uh, they fired their prince. The prince was a hired executive 
was not allowed to own land in Novgorod, just hired. They could fire him if he did a bad job. They had their own popular assembly called Vietja system. It was very much like the English folkmoot or other European systems as still existing in the Landesgemeinde in Switzerland, where people come together to debate uh, things. Unfortunately, however, the Tsars of Muscovy destroyed it. And Ivan III uh, attacked the city. The marshes were frozen. He was able to get to the city walls and took their bells. Uh, Rob McDonald may talk about the Liberty Bell. Bells are very important for liberty. It was pre-Twitter, no Snapchat. So how did they communicate? It was through bells. And they just didn't say ding, ding, ding. They had complex bells that indicated the city's under attack, or there's an election, or the courts are meeting, or whatever it is, and everyone would know what they were, ought to do now. And when you melt the bell, you melt their ability to govern themselves. And then Ivan the Terrible uh, massacred the entire population and killed everyone. So there's still a Novgorod, but it's the place, not, not the culture, if you will. Uh, the Dutch, <clears throat> uh, as this absolutism is rising in Europe, I mentioned King uh, uh, James VI and I, this principle takes hold, absolute power of the monarch. And people defend the older medieval principles. This is a very important point. Liberalism, in some ways, is a defense of older principles against the new onslaught of absolutism. We sometimes hear it said by people who are a little uninformed, they'll say, oh, the divine right of kings, it's a medieval doctrine. This is not true. It's a modern doctrine. The medieval doctrine is where everyone governs under the law. But the modern doctrine is the king is above the law. We hear this, of course, for presidents and, and so on as well. Above the law. The sovereign is above the law. Well, when the Spanish king, Philip, tries to impose absolute power in the Netherlands, the Dutch say, no, no, no. He says, you have these little parliaments. Talk, 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 talk. Let's get rid of it. I'll modernize you. They said, we don't think so. And they fight. They fight against the imposition of new taxes. And they develop a remarkable society, the first middle class free society in the world. They develop religious toleration. Again, these are business people. And they learn that principle. You're trying to sell someone some shipment of salted cod or some a Vermeer painting. And someone else is being burned alive in the next booth. How do you do business under those conditions? Uh, and so there's a very famous petition of the merchants of Antwerp to the Spanish king that says, oh, your reverence, you're so cool, we love you, you're number one. By the way, please do not introduce the Inquisition into our city because so many heretics come here to trade, it will ruin us. And the point was very, very clear. And they develop a tolerant society, the first of the modern era in Europe. The Dutch are very important pioneers of freedom. Uh, move forward in England, the fight over the Stuarts to be above the law. And the English have a long tradition of saying the law is supreme. Henry de Bracton from the 13th century, the law makes him king where there, there's no king where will and not law bears rule. And then with King James I and Charles I, his successor, Sir Edward Cook maintains the supremacy of the common law. It's about this time the first consistent libertarians emerge. These are people who are very radical. 
They believe in a constitutional order, everyone subject to the law, one common law for everyone. That's why they're called levelers, not a law for you and a law for me that are different. They believe in freedom of trade, the right to property, the right to freedom of religion for everyone, including Catholics. They were all Protestants, but they defended the rights of Catholics. There were women levelers which enraged and infuriated their opponents. How dare a woman express views on politics, unless she's the queen, of course, then absolute power. Um, John Lilburn is a man to owe, whom we owe a great deal. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth, also a leveler. And as he said, uh, I shall leave this testimony behind me that I died for the laws and liberties of this nation. And to him we owe right to trial by jury and open legal proceedings because he risked his life for it. They were so radical, they believed something that even today is considered debatable in England. They believed even Irish people have rights. <laughs> and they refused to invade Ireland and subdue them. And many of them were executed. You can go to Burford uh, in uh, England, where they rebelled and were finally put down by Lord Fairfax under orders from the Lord Protector Cromwell. Their ideas were powerful, very, very powerful ideas. And they influenced many, John Locke among them. Uh, Locke had leveler writings in his library. He never cites them, but he also never publicly acknowledged authorship of his two treatises. It's very dangerous, seditious books. But he says, <clears throat> each, every man has a property in his own person. Very powerful claim. Everybody has a property in his own person. And that process continued in the revolt of the American colonies, something you're going to hear more about uh, later on. The war for independence, the establishment of a new political order based on the idea that all men are created equal, and the establishment of the idea of limited government. And here I'll just mention quickly uh, the great Turgot, the French finance minister who was dismissed by Marie Antoinette, who advised the Americans, his friends, he said, limit government's power, reduce to the smallest number the kinds of affairs of which the government of each state should take charge. And next, to pick up the story, will be Rob McDonald coming up next. So we have a little bit of time for some discussion, if I'm right there, and some microphones. So if anyone would like to uh, raise an issue, something you'd like to discuss further, uh, come on up. And uh, we're a bit more interested in being educated by you and not just hearing me talk. We have one coming up here. So don't be shy. Do you have a Sorry? Do you have any We will be putting it, I believe, online, assuming that the recording works out. And that doesn't always happen. But if it does, this will be put uh, online. Yes, sir. Hey, Tom, we celebrate the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, this Sunday in many churches. Could you discuss the significance of Martin Luther as it pertains to the experience of liberty and the separation from the Catholic Church and the authority that existed at that time? It's a complex question. Obviously, uh, first of all, we think of Martin Luther in this context. There are many others. John Calvin is the other one that's very widely remembered, but Sebastian Castellio, uh, Erasmus, and others who were promoting some kind of reformation of the church. So there had been multiple reformations before that. I mentioned the Gregorian Reformation, 
which instituted uh, principles for the governance of the church such as celibacy of the clergy. And that was a political move, not a theological one, to make the church independent from the state. Because if the bishop marries the daughter of the king, that bishop is now loyal to the king and would inherit lands. And the idea was to be loyal to the church. You're married to the church. It's not a theological principle. It's a political principle, which is why there are many priests in communion with Rome in other rites, R-I-T-E-S, who are married. Maronites, Uniates, uh, Greek Catholics, and so on are part of the communion of Rome. They have an Eastern rite, and they're married, but they can be admitted in. And of course, married Episcopalian priests can uh, convert to Catholicism and are not required to um, um, uh, divorce. So there are many reformations. This is the one people think of as the reformation because it brings about a split in the church that was not healed. So if you think about it in that sense as a, as a cleavage in the church, it brought about new kinds of orders such as congregationalism, which are self-governing church communities. It's not clear to me that it had an obviously favorable impact on liberty overall. And the reason is the wars of religion were ferocious, horrifying uh, in Europe. And uh, Martin Luther did not intend this initially. That's pretty clear from reading his writings. Um, I'll talk a little bit later about Sebastian Castellio, who was a Reformation figure who was much more libertarian than Calvin uh, and his approach to this question. But one of the things that emerged was we see today separation of church and state. But what emerges from the Protestant Reformation is not that initially. It takes a long time for that to happen. One of the things that emerges after the Peace of Westphalia in 1648 is the idea that the religion will be that of the prince. And so you get the ability to leave from one jurisdiction to another. But where you are, you have to worship according to how your prince worships. And the idea then of authentic freedom of religion takes a longer time. And the Dutch, as I mentioned, are the real extraordinary pioneers of that because they learned that we can live together. You go to Lutheran church, uh, I go to a Calvinist church, our neighbor goes to a Catholic church, and we can still be okay, where we can do business and be friends and so on. It's a hard thing to learn because I realize you're going to burn in hell forever. <laughs> and it makes me sad. And the doctrine of righteous persecution that emerges from that is if I just kind of torture you a little bit, you'll stop believing this bad thing and you'll come back into the church. So these persecutions that take place on both sides are quite ferocious. They're intended to save your soul and to learn that, well, I can't do that. I can't torture you a little bit or hope in the last moment, this is the theory, as the flames are engulfing, you'll say, whoa, this is a mistake and accept the true faith, whichever it happens to be, depending on who's burning you. Um, uh, that doctrine was abandoned and doctrine of toleration and live and not live is adopted, but it took a long time. It wasn't an obvious corollary to Martin Luther's actions. And I don't think he intended what later happens 
also. He did not have that as a vision. He wanted to reform the church, the church. And the split was, I think, an unintended consequence of his activity. So it's a very complex legacy. Just as a connection mm -hmm. to the American experience of liberty, Martin Luther took advantage of the printing press. Yes. And we'll see that or hear that maybe later in the American experience just here in Philadelphia. And so that's, that, that's another significant part of Martin Luther in the yes. Reformation is all of a sudden there was this free expression of ideas through the printing press, yes. which I think is a significant factor in the experience of liberty. Oh, I, I agree with that. And the willingness to translate the holy text, the Bible, which means the book, into the vulgar languages, the languages of the people, which meant everybody could have access to them. So this had just revolutionary consequences in Europe, no question. Yes. Hi, thank you. Um, I want to take us back to 1080, if I can. Okay. You used two examples as uh, typifying the, or no, two examples of Roman law that was rediscovered around that time. Two, two principles that were two extracted. Principles. Yes, good, thank you. Two principles extracted and sometimes um, written on shields of Roman soldiers. So no, they seem contradictory soldiers, to me. Right. Yes, they are. Okay, good. So if you could talk a little bit about that. One was um, what touches all must be approved by all, right? That mm -hmm. would be more predictable, I would think. And the second, what pleases the prince has the force of law. All right, to me, those are antithetical. So, they are. Um, and are they just then, therefore, examples of what is probably the contradictory nature of a complex body of laws? I don't think or so. Or what? <laughs> uh, and, and the reason is that the, the first is drawn from legal practice of how to resolve legal disputes. So mm -hmm. if there are two persons who have authority over an asset, it can't be sold, for example, unless both of them or all three of them or all eight of them are in agreement, a partnership law, if you will. The second actually is drawn from the introduction to the textbook that was commissioned by the emperor. Oh. <laughs> and it says, whatever the emperor says is the law. And the emperors also did have a legal function in addition to being just powerful people. Legal cases would be brought before them. And Octavian, Caesar Augustus, actually is a very competent lawyer and does bring about various uh, uh, positive developments in the Roman law. But those just become extracted out of context as battle slogans, if you will. And they've come down to us as principles. One, the absolute nature of power, which we hear echoes of this in this country. Yeah. Right? We, president Clinton argued this. The law doesn't apply to me. I mean, really? I'm the president. <laughs> law is for you little people. Uh, that was an echo right. of that. Okay. And then this principle that there needs to be some consent of the governed. And now we get this in our idea of checks and balances and the houses of Congress and the people are represented in two different methods. So, so those are contradictory principles plucked out of this body of law and turned into political statements. Very good. And you pull them because they are contradictory. In other words, you Absolutely, pull okay. yes. Thank you. That's good. correct. Very good. Thank you. We're going to have just a teeny bit of time. Yes, sir. Hi. Uh, Kurt Byron from Los Angeles. Uh, I wanted to come back to this idea of separation of church and state. Some people mm -hmm. refer to it as the great separation. Um, I think many would agree that we can't have economic liberty without religious liberty. 
question is, um, does, um, is the idea of religious liberty, liberty of conscience, not a function of the separation of church and state, but itself a religious idea? Oh, I'm going to talk about that in my, my next one. This is a very important issue, so if I can just very briefly. Um, it is a comforting belief to people who are not religious, uh, and just for what it's worth, I'm not, um, to think, oh, it's the lack of religion that led to, re to religious freedom. This is simply not true. It emerged out of their religious faith. And I'll talk about these people. They fought for freedom of conscience because they were moved by faith. Most of the atheists of the time kind of kept their heads down and didn't talk about these things. because It was dangerous. They, they're out of the game. It was people who believed in transcendent principles that were willing to sacrifice their lives for the freedom of other people. That's what makes you a committed libertarian is that you believe in the freedom of other people also. So think about the Quakers and the work that they did on behalf of eliminating slavery and so on. They were not motivated by just some other theory. It was their religion and their religious passion that motivated them. So that's a very, very important part of this. The other point, just as a thought, one way to think about freedom of religion is to think about the privatization of a state enterprise. When the state had religion subordinate to it, it's like socialism. You have a state enterprise. It's when they were, in effect, made independent of the state and then competitive that you end up with religious freedom. And I'll conclude with one thought. I have uh, relatives in Germany who came to the United States many years ago, and they wanted to go to a Catholic church, and I recommended a local one. They came back uh, Sunday after going to church. I said, how was it? And they said, it was crass and tasteless. I said, really, why? They said, they asked us for money. <laughs> and I said, oh, really? And uh, yes. It's like, I said, well, let me ask you a question. When you go to church in Germany, is the church full? I said, well, no, Christmas. I said, OK, was it full on this normal Sunday? Yes. Were there many children there? Yes, lots of children. Do you see many children in German church? No mainly old ladies. I said, did the children give money in the plate? I said, they did, like a little coin or something. I said, that's why they go to church, because they're wanted. The church has to be responsive. And in Germany, you pay what's called the Kirchensteuer. You pay the church tax. It's funded by the state. Well, it's not responsive to the needs of the community. It's just a bureaucracy. and. Uh, this is, this is the importance of real separation of church and state, is churches have to compete to service their flocks. Last question, I think, is the last one we're going to be able to take. Yes, sir. Oh, Very OK. Quick. Well, excellent, because it goes into about like separation of church and state in the okay. First Amendment. So whenever the Constitution was being ratified, originally the First Amendment wasn't written in there, uh, you know, freedom for relig uh, religious liberties. It wasn't until John Leland a Baptist preacher approached James Madison and basically said, we're not going to vote for ratification unless these are guaranteed. So my main question is, is one, uh, why wasn't mainly the idea of religious liberties guaranteed by the Constitution originally? Maybe it was just viewed as like a natural right that it didn't need to be yeah. written? Well, R Rob is someone who could talk about this at length, but I can say the following. 
In the debate over whether there should be a Bill of Rights, there were very powerful arguments on both sides. Those who were against it said the Constitution is a Bill of Rights because if there's no power delegated to the government, then it can't violate any rights. The assumption is you can practice whatever religion you want. You want. There's no power in the Constitution for someone to dictate to you. Uh, but the others said, OK, fine, we get it, but we don't trust them. And then the response was, if you take a list of rights, you will say, those are all the ones you've got. That's why the Ninth and Tenth Amendments are in there, the crowning glory, the Ninth Amendment, the enumeration of certain rights in the Constitution shall not be construed to deny or disparage others retained by the people. You have more rights than are on the list. And the Tenth Amendment, uh, the de delegation of certain powers in the Constitution, I don't remember, to the government, shall not be construed to uh, oh, how does it go? I have, I'm so embarrassed. No, the tenth. Tenth. Yes, shall be reserved to the states or to the people, respectively. In other words, if it's not on the list, they don't have the power. That's why they're in there. They're the beautiful, crowning glory of our Constitution that made sense of having enumerated powers, some enumerated rights, but it made it clear. The enumeration of rights does not exhaust all your rights, but the enumeration of powers does exhaust their powers. And with that, my time is exhausted. And we're going to, because it's, well, we don't have time. We're going to continue on. And we will meet here again shortly for Rob McDonald. It's going to be fabulous, so let's start on time. Coffee's outside, coffee recycling stations over to the side. And we'll be back here. Thank you. <laughs>